0: Welcome to Harlow on Healthcare. I'm David Harlow, and I invite you to join me by my virtual hearth as I sit down with healthcare leaders to discuss building the future of healthcare. Today, my guest is Dr. Tim O'Connell, who is a practicing radiologist and the CEO of Intelligent, a natural language processing company active in the healthcare field. Welcome, Tim, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. So, give us a capsule summary, if you will, of Intelligent, what Intelligent is doing, and your journey. What has brought you, as a practicing radiologist, into the health tech sphere?
1: Thanks, David. I'd, I'd love to. So, I started a, my, my sort of earliest career, I guess you could say, was working with computers. And then I did a master's degree in engineering and worked as a network engineer and then decided to make my life really complicated and went back to school and did medical school. So I've got this sort of joint technology and medicine background and working in hospitals through my training. And then as a staff physician, I realized one of our biggest problems really was in information management. We have these electronic patient charts and, and they're wonderful, uh, but as caregivers, we're responsible for essentially everything in the patient's chart. So if we don't know that they have a condition and that's on us. Um, so I realized we needed better tools to be able to sort through the patient information in a chart and patients can have thousands of documents in their charts. And so that was, I, I got interested in natural language processing and I ended up meeting some of the co-founders of Intelligent in, in doing some work in NLP, and that was kind of how we got started, right? I, I needed an application that could give me a patient summary so that if a patient had, well, I was uh, reading a CT scan in the emergency department, and all I got from the emergency physician was RLQ pain, or right lower quadrant pain, and I opened up the patient's case, and they had 50 priors that I could get a, a summary of what was in those prior reports, read it quickly, and then I could provide higher quality care to that patient. So that was the use case I had as a caregiver to get started, and that was the background. And so at Intelligent, we make uh, natural language processing software, which essentially reads medical documents and structures, understands the data, structures it, and then makes it available for applications or analytics or research or whatever the use case is.
0: So as a clinician, would it be your preference to have a set of templates, so to speak, depending on the type of encounter, the type of patient, the type of medicine you're practicing? Yeah. A one-size-fits-all uh, filter or frame for the vastness of each person's EHR?
1: Absolutely. Well, in, in healthcare today, David, and you're, you, you describe yourself as a recovery lawyer, so, you know, we, I'm sure that the use cases are similar you we have these very long patient documents, and we end up skimming through them and looking for important nuggets and, and important pieces of information and hoping we we don't miss anything. So really, all we're presented with today in today's electronic health record systems is, by and large, just like a, a file interface like Explorer or something like that, Windows Explorer, that shows, okay, there's a discharge summary from this date and an anesthesia consult from this date and a radiology report from this date. And if we want to know what's in those, we need to uh, start reading. And that's one of the reasons why you call a hospital and say, hey, how many of your patients had B-cell lymphoma last month? They'll say, well, we don't know. That's in the chart, right? That's not, we don't build to that level of, of detail. So all of this, we have all this crucially important information about our patients in the charts needed for healthcare administrators needed for payers needed for caregivers needed for patients and it's essentially locked in prose form we can't use it in an automated fashion for anything so as so, an- how, so how
0: do you get at it so tell yeah. us a little bit about natural language processing nlp and there's yeah, probably absolutely. a bunch of other computer aided tools that folks are familiar with and maybe talk a little bit about how nlp is like or unlike those? Is this a subset of AI or
1: Yeah, exactly. So AI is a super broad umbrella. And NLP or natural language processing is essentially a a subset or a sub area or whatever you want to call it in artificial intelligence because it's computers reading and understanding human language. So if you take a, a simple sentence like there's evidence of gallbladder inflammation, but the appendix is normal which is something that I might put into one of my radiology reports if, as I read a CT scan of the abdomen or something. And when our software reads that, it's going to say, okay, gallbladder inflammation, that corresponds to this medical code in a medical ontology. Appendix is a body site and appendix is normal. So that's, there's no disease or no abnormality related to the appendix, that sort of thing, just as a human does when they read it and they comprehend language. So these our software picks up on all sorts of things in every sentence that it reads, like negation is something present or absent? Is there uncertainty about things? Is this part of a question? Is this a guidance statement? What are the relations between entities? If I say this spleen is fifteen centimeters in length, then then we need to know that the spleen, which is this body site, is, is this long so that that sort of thing. so that's sort of what the software does, and it takes all these. Entities, the assertions about them and the relations between them and stores it into databases or makes it available for use really by end users. So if an insurance customer wants to go, I want to know what everyone's left ventricular ejection fraction is, which is a, a way to quantify the degree of heart failure glossing over a whole lot there from my cardiology colleagues. We'll we'll allow it. Thank you. Thank you. Then they can, like, and they've processed a whole bunch of documents with our software, then they can just query this big data database and find out what everyone's ejection fraction was. And so it's, there's a whole lot of data, about 80% of medical data is stored in this unstructured PROSE form. Tim came to see me today with a three week history of of knee pain or something like that. And so We have these
0: EMRs have pages and pages of checkboxes and drop down menus, but everybody just Mm -hmm. gives you the narrative.
1: Right. Exactly, and you know what? As caregivers, we need these narratives, right? You you can't boil down a, a two hour long psychiatry interview into drop down lists and check boxes. You really there's a lot of, of subtleties and language. You need to get it across, and so we need narrative text, and and that's how people work fastest. It's quite cumbersome to to make the many decisions you need to do if you're a human and you're structuring data.
0: Sure. So the the challenge then, and the need for nuance, and the need for capturing shading of meaning mm-hmm. also, to my mind, creates a question in terms of the utility of the tools you're describing, right? As a professional skeptic, I would ask, <laughs> why, you know, why should I trust your tool? Why, how, how do I know that your tool is properly associating the the statement that something was normal with the gallbladder and abnormal with the appendix, right. or vice versa? Right. Absolutely.
1: So the right answer, and the I, I think the right answer there is you shouldn't, and right because honestly, as a physician, you need to be mistrustful of everything you read in, in the chart and everything, and you need to, and if stuff how we often make clinical discoveries about our patients is that something doesn't add up. So when I say that you shouldn't trust us, it, I, I do mean it half jokingly. But what our software is is it's completely explainable. So when we structure data in a sentence, saying the gallbladder is this and the appendix is that, we reference everything back to the original sentence with character offsets and the words that were used in the sentence and this sort of thing. It's not just a magic black box that says, oh, you know, we made this decision. So it's really important when you're building applications for caregivers or administrators or whomever, and you're saying, here's all the patients who had their appendix taken out last month that you can reference it back to the sentence and go, and here's the sentence that made us think this. So here, human, you verify this, right? So it's not just like we think that there's some probability, there's a 65% probability that the patient had their appendix out or something like that. It, it's, it doesn't work like that. In every case, we're always able to go, here's what made us think this. You, you make the decision. And, and I think that's really the current safe way to, to design these next-generation applications that use natural processing. Sure, that makes sense. So I
0: wonder, since it is open in that way, in a typical install of an NLP tool in a clinical setting, yep. would someone take it for a test drive for a while and then do some local
1: tuning? Yeah. To make uh, sure that it works for them? That can... That certainly can be the case. So we're not, at Intelligent, we're not particularly an application company in that we don't make an application that uh, an end user would necessarily use. We're really focused on the extremely difficult task of teaching computers and AI models how to understand human medical language. And we work with technology partners who make the user interfaces and, and this sort of thing. But certainly, uh, the, the, yes. The
0: tweaking would take place at the application level. It example.
1: often does. And we also work with customers. It's it, Our engagements are usually fairly long with customers and in, in terms of the ramp-up towards production. And it can be that they're... They've got some type of document that our models have never seen before, right? I think Tip O'Neill said all politics is local. Well, all medicine is local. So there's always right. kind of turns of phrase and different things that people have in their documents that are unique to that institution. So certainly it's a totally normal process when we go in to have to do some system tuning and get some feedback from the customers and that sort of thing. And, and that's expected. And... I assume you are an optimist when it comes
0: to the application of tools like this and probably see an opportunity for further adoption beyond a current installed base, whether it's your company's products or others. Do you have a sense of how many folks or what proportion of clinical folks are using
1: tools like this today or or what? It's really super nascent right now, David. I think that I don't have a good sense in terms of what the proportion of like, if you're just talking about clinical users, because we, you know, we have a lot of use cases for our software. It's not just, and there are for NLP. It's not just nurses and doctors and, and technologists, It. It's very nascent right now. The people have been working on natural language processing in medicine since the 1960s, um, and it's really only with the latest technology advances in machine learning, deep learning, large language models, transformers, things like this, that the technology has gotten to the point where we can now use it for these clinical use cases. And And what I mean by that is, let's say I want a clinical summary and I want to know like what diseases does this patient have If it was previous information from, if if you're rather a previous generation of NLP software from the 1990s, it might be wrong 20% at the time, right? Which is an unacceptably high level of wrongness. We regularly see accuracy rates with our own software and in this field of greater than 99% for things. So again, it's still really important to have these presentation states to the end user to say, hey, here's what we found. Here's why we think it. Here's the source, document, whatever you verify. But when it sort of achieves this level of accuracy is when you can start using it clinically. So it's pretty, pretty new right now.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is Harlow on Healthcare coming to you on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm David Harlow, and my guest today is Dr. Tim O'Connell. CEO of Mtelligent. Tim, we've been talking about patient-specific clinical uses and touching a little bit on some population health uses of tools like this. I wonder if you could dig a little deeper and a little broader and talk about other use cases in healthcare for this sort of technology.
1: Sure. I'd, I'd love to, David. I think there's certainly use cases on. Well, let's talk about like one issue which is um, really important and which we all, have, everyone globally, has a lot of experience with, which is in epidemiology, right? Um, we're all epidemiologists. We are all budding epidemiologists. Now. Yes, absolutely. Right. So let's just talk about, for example, disease or, or symptom surveillance. So you can imagine in a big city, how many people on a given day go to their family doctor's office or a primary care clinic and complain that they have symptoms of an upper respiratory tract infection or lower respiratory tract infection, cough and fever, right? That can be the sign. If there is a particular spike in that and it's above beyond so many standard deviations of normal, that could be an indication that there is a respiratory illness outbreak, there's another serious viral illness that's starting. And we should be using things like natural language processing to go through clinic notes from primary care clinics to do this type of infectious disease surveillance. And we're not doing that today. So that's one potential use case for things like natural language processing. It's a very specific use case. But also to a large extent, a lot of our healthcare systems right now today, they're run based on fairly coarse metrics about system performance, a lot of using a lot of very structured data around times, like what time did the patient get to the operating room? What time did the operation commence? What time did it complete? What time did they leave? This sort of thing. But we're not collecting a lot of data on clinical performance because it's so hard to get at because it's captured in prose, so A lot of things we could do, we probably would do differently. We would assess quality differently in our healthcare systems in terms of the care delivered and patient outcomes, if we could do widespread analytics on what's in the patient chart. So that's another good use case for natural language processing. And you can imagine just based on those two things, you can imagine if you're a government wanting to know about population health, if you're a large payer, wanting to better assess risk wanted to give better discounts to your uh, patients or make sure you're receiving appropriate remuneration for very high-risk patients, things like that. Right now, there's a a real dearth of clinical information being transmitted from producers and consumers within the healthcare environment.
0: Tim, in your first couple of examples, you were really talking about the distinction between quantitative data and qualitative data and describing these tools as things that allow us to tap into Qualitative data in a, in a way that we haven't been able to previously or at a scale that we haven't been able to previously. I guess the question is, are we do we have confidence in the ability to analyze the qualitative data or the free text data in a way that can yield actionable insights?
1: Yeah, I think I think it is a nascent. I think it's again a thing because we've never had this data before, in a large extent. That we're uh, we're learning how to do large scale analysis of it, and it should be evidence directed. We should not just be analyzing data and making assumptions with being able to further analyze the data and back up those assumptions that we're seeing in the data and those patterns that we're seeing in the data. I don't. I wouldn't use qualitative versus quantitative, I, I don't think that's applicable here. I think if someone has, has had their appendix out, that's a quantitative data point. It's a, it's a one, not a zero. But I think that the, I know what you're saying. It's basically like w- we're in the business of taking unstructured text and structuring it. And so it's this structured data that people have never had access to before. And, and thank goodness there's been a real explosion in data science um, because we're able to work with some really wonderful data scientists who are pioneering some of these new approaches to analysis.
0: In the world of managed care, I imagine there are potential applications uh, for this toolkit in terms of whether it's network development or whether it's rolling out population-specific programs, primary care-type programs, primary care and prevention programs. Um, Have you seen that happening? Do you see the opportunity for that to
1: happen? I think there's an definite opportunity for it to happen, David. I'm not sure that, I think right now what we are seeing in a lot of use cases is people are interested in adopting the software primarily around use cases that are directly tied to things like remuneration, because it's a totally new field, it's a new type of software, it hasn't been used before. People want to know if they make the investment in it, is it going to either directly save them cost or is it going to directly help them increase profitability? So I think that there's a lot of use cases that are focused on remuneration right now to ensure that, for example, medical coding is appropriate. And, and sure. That. So something
0: is coded accurately to make sure that whatever yeah. reimbursement is available gets
1: collected. Right? 100%. So there's a lot or, of... Cases or, uh, are- or
0: assigned to a particular provider in the case of a value-based system.
1: For sure. So there's a lot of use cases around medical NLP and medical AI focused on appropriate remuneration uh, right now. But I think that we're going to be, and certainly we've had lots of conversations with customers about new types, uh, or rather using data sources that they've previously not been able to use, such as chart data, such as home care visit data, things like this, to ensure that the right patient's getting the right care at the right time. Right. And that that when the patient is ready, they're being transitioned from hospital to a, a long-term care facility or from a, a long-term care facility to home or, or whatever that use case is. There's so many different use cases for this. So what I hear you saying there
0: is, perhaps tell me if I'm stop me if I'm overstating this, is a more holistic view of a patient. Right. It's yeah. not just a snapshot. Oh, you're within my four walls. We took out your appendix.
1: Exactly. And that's really, I think, one of the many complaints that that patients today have about the healthcare system is they can feel that as soon as they're out of the walls of the building, that it's somebody else's problem. And I think we do need better care coordination. And I think NLP will be one of the technologies that enables better care coordination by giving everyone involved in that patient's care a 360 degree view of that patient. Right. So that that people delivering care directly or administrators responsible for care delivery are able to know who their patients are and respond to their individual needs. Sure.
0: And look, that's a recurring theme and recurring problem, not my patient or not my problem. Yeah, And if there is the opportunity to have a more holistic view and the ability to dig deep easily, then we can maybe step away from that as long as we have appropriate Compensation systems in place so that people are incentivized to yeah. use the tools, right?
1: Absolutely, Central, yeah. right. It's, right. The, the system is the system, and humans are humans, and so we need to, we do need to properly incentivize people to do these things. Right.
0: So I'm wondering, we we skirted around the issue a little bit, but I wonder if you could address even more directly our current state of affairs in the world. We are in I hesitate to say post-pandemic but maybe post-pandemic or if not the new normal then what I would call the next normal until the next normal after that comes along yeah have you seen any particular new lessons learned in the course of the pandemic that are applicable
1: post-pandemic well I, I think I think everyone has in healthcare I mean I, I think if I put on my radiologist hat I think we've learned a lot about respiratory illness about respiratory isolation proper isolation for patients what the meaning of airborne versus droplet precautions and the division between those two and all sorts of things like that I think the healthcare system has just learned an enormous amount of um, about caring for patients with respiratory viral illnesses i think that one thing that the healthcare system has learned is the importance of resiliency and i don't think i don't i think that people gave some thought to it before but i don't think we've given a lot of thought to it before when i worked as a network engineer for example one of my customers was a really large bank and they were legislated to and they did maintain enormous infrastructure around resiliency. For example, they had like backup data centers that had to be geographically separate and live connections between the data centers, fiber optic cables, all this sort of stuff to be able to have resiliency in case a, a meteor or other natural disaster took out one of their data centers that their customers would still get access to their money. And I think a lot of things in our healthcare system have not been designed with a lot of resiliency in mind. And so I think that one of the things we are going to see more and more of in healthcare, particularly around at new applications like artificial intelligence, is some very thoughtful approaches to how do we implement this in a resilient and safe way. In other words, if we develop new workflows where care decisions are being made by AI software, and that AI software breaks down for some reason, what happens to the patient? So we're learning, we're bringing process control and process engineering into medicine in a way we never have before. Before it was all a lot of, well, that's how it's always worked, right? The doctor sees the patient and then the doctor refers and then the patient gets a test and then the patient goes back to see the doctor. And now with all these AI technologies, we have an opportunity to re-engineer these processes. But what I think the pandemic has taught us is these processes need to be resilient and safe. And what do we do when the process breaks down? Okay. And Tim, to wrap things up, I
0: wonder if you would either extend that thought or maybe go down a different path and think about this. If you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself five years in the future, what's one thing in healthcare that you would hope or perhaps expect to find has changed drastically?
1: I think the thing that I would want with my clinician hat on would be that we have the tools to do our jobs properly. And by do our jobs, I mean to know our patients, right? We're seeing a lot of people move into part-time work. We're seeing a lot of physician burnout. We're seeing a lot of see in the doctor-patient relationship. And when I go in to do a biopsy on a patient, I want a good clinical summary of that patient so I can be sensitive to their cultural background and their healthcare situation and financial situation and their needs and everything. And I don't have any tools to do that right now, or I have very coarse tools that take me a very long time to use. So I think five years from now, I would love for us to be using new technologies like NLP and artificial intelligence to help us get to know our patients better, to deliver more personalized care. Well, something to hope for and strive for. Thank you
0: very much for joining me today. It was a pleasure, David. You've been listening to Harlow on Healthcare. Join us at healthcarenowradio.com. Let's continue the conversation on building the future of healthcare together at hashtag Harlow on HC. I'm David Harlow, keeping the fire going and holding a seat open for you. Until next time.